Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to the first episode of Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans and pop culture. First of all, I want to thank everyone who listened to and shared the trailer episode of the podcast. I've been working on this podcast for a few months now, and to see the immediate positive response from people has been amazing. Uh, I know most of you personally, and if I don't know you personally, extra thank you as well uh, for taking a chance and listening and, and sharing on your own. Um, if you haven't had a chance, though, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and rate it and give a review. Um, I'll be sure to read out some of the reviews next week, so please write it a note in there about the podcast. Honestly, what you like, what do you think needs work, uh, and I'll be sure to read it out next week. Um, it'll also help with the discovery of the podcast. For example, right now, if you type in Asian American and Apple Podcasts, Rice for Breakfast is pretty low in the search results. We're even being beaten out by podcasts that have nothing to do with Asian Americans or are no longer being updated. So um, every subscription and review and rating helps bump that up. The big story in Asian American news this week is obviously the release of Crazy Rich Asians, the film directed by John M. Chu, starring Constance Wu and Henry Golding. Uh, amazingly, the movie earned $34 million in its five-day opening, making it the highest-grossing rom-com since Amy Schumer's Trainwreck, which is also a phenomenal movie. Uh, I, I really made sure that I was able to watch Crazy Rich Asians opening weekend to help with that box office number because for those in the industry and, and entertainment world, everyone knows that opening weekend numbers are really what matters. Um, and they got number one. They already made back uh, the, the $30 million budget for the film. And I'm really, really hoping uh, this sends a message to Hollywood that people are craving, um, you know, new stories and new people to be portrayed in in film and television. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the movie. I mean, honestly, I went in there thinking, okay, if it's just going to be like, an, it'll be a fine movie. I, at least I'm supporting, um, you know, fellow Asian Americans and, and Asian actors. But it was awesome. Disclaimer, I am a huge fan of rom-coms. Um, but I, regardless, I still think it was a really fun movie. The acting was great, uh, across the board. Aquafina was fantastic. Ken Jeong, Henry Golden, Constance Wu, obviously, uh, Aquafina was amazing, but m the main standout for me was Michelle Yeoh, who plays Eleanor Young. She is Henry Golding, uh, Nick Young's mother, and she is phenomenal the whole time. She's uh, perfectly balanced as being portrayed as this evil woman, but at the same time just shown as really caring about tradition and, and uh, you know, honor in her family. It, she's a very complex character that on the surface level might just seem like a full, you know, playing the real antagonist. But when you keep, you know, pulling back layers, you can tell it's actually a very nuanced character. And I think she's uh, amazing at it. There's one part in the film that really stood out to me on a very personal level. Uh, there's a scene where Henry Golding's character, Nick Young, uh, he introduces his girlfriend, Rachel, played by Constance Wu, to his grandmother. And his grandmother goes up to Constance Wu and, and looks at her nose and comments on her nose. And that immediately reminded me of growing up, my grandma would always pinch my nose to make sure it was bigger. <laughs> uh, so that immediately struck a chord when, when I saw that scene. Um, happen on the screen. Every week I'll make sure to talk about some stories about Asian Americans in pop culture. Uh, a lot of the times people can't keep up with that sort of stuff and if you're going to listen to this it might be nice for me just to fill you in so uh, that'll be a little thing I'll have going throughout the series. So this week's guest is Simon Tam who is not only the bassist and founder of the world's first and only all Asian American dance rock band called The Slants, he has also won the Supreme Court case Matal versus Tam that was a landmark legal battle that helped expand First Amendment rights for minorities and trademark law. Um, we had a really good conversation. We talked about all sorts of stuff. He had just met Wolf Blitzer, what music his parents listened to growing up, obviously starting to slants uh, and his Supreme Court case. We talked about how his band came up in the anime scene, uh, freedom of speech, his secret love for Harry Potter, all that sort of stuff. So it was really fun. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, sharing. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review if you can. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @ricebreakfast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash riceforbreakfastpod. And you can go to riceforbreakfast.com for 
more ways to listen. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, eat your rice for breakfast. Simon, welcome to Rice for Breakfast. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest. Uh, how's your day going so far? Great. Thank you so much for having me and taking the time to speak. Of course. Yeah, you too. Uh, I know you've had a pretty busy schedule, so I'm glad we were able to set up some time for us to talk. Um, what, what were you doing? Were you playing with the band or doing speaking engagements or anything like that? A little bit of both. Uh, most recently, I was in Washington, D.C. I was uh, honored to receive the First Amendment Award from the Huma Hefner Foundation. So felt a little bit out of place, but you know, very honored to be amongst a lot of kind of rogue professors and journalists who did a lot of really brave, incredible works in terms of publishing articles that needed to be heard. So that was just a really wonderful experience. Well, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, why don't we just jump into that? So what's the specific um, award? I, I'm actually not familiar with that. So. It, Christy Hefner, who's the daughter of the late Hugh Hefner, created a foundation that's kind of dedicated to celebrating the First Amendment. And so they kind of award people in different areas from a lot of journalists, but there's also scholars and professors. And then every once in a while, they pick someone from the kind of arts and entertainment world as well. And for, for me, they chose me as the arts and entertainment person. But rather than being the person that... Um, is being honored for their actual art. So like Bill Maher got awarded for a comedy a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, my case was awarded because of our band's Supreme Court battle. And so uh, just being included in that kind of mix of folks who kind of try and expand the opportunity to engage with folks who we maybe don't necessarily always agree with and maybe kind of expand that kind of scope by expanding the fir First Amendment that was just a really kind of eye-opening experience to see how it can play out in so many different ways since we often times only hear about like the championship of free speech or first amendment as by you know the alt-right or people who are looking to abuse speech and, but i was at an event full of people who were very progressive and who, who cared deeply about marginalized communities and fighting for very different reasons so it was a very very special evening because of that that's, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Well, congr congrats on that. I mean, I'm sure when you started uh, your band, the Supreme Court case was one thing you doubt you ever saw coming, and then now this award. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I could never in a million years imagine uh, going to the Supreme Court, let alone, you know, meeting someone from the Hefner family. I mean, that was just like really out of left field for me. <laughs> uh, anyone else interesting or anyone else you noticed specifically at the award ceremony? I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of journalists there. So the former editors of the Chicago Tribune, the L LA Times, and then at one point, this older gentleman introduced himself to me, and I was like, "I know who you are. You're Wolf Blitzer. I just saw you on the television like ten minutes ago." <laughs> <laughs> That's but awesome. It, it was just kind of just very surreal because I was in D.C. and of course CNN has a an outpost out there, right. and they have several journalists who you know they they actually had. CNN on the television playing before the event. So like I saw right then and then and then they were just there in front of me. So, so that was kind of a little bit wild uh, and just kind of kind of neat because I, I have a lot of respect for for journalists who, who tend to take a lot. You know, they get a lot of flack for their work. Yep, especially uh, and, right and, now. And, yeah, and, and by, both by, you know, say our president as well as from people who don't necessarily agree with what the press has to say. But I, I would say that like, that's a very difficult job. I would not, I, I don't think I could put myself in that particular spot because you're just constantly trying to do the best you can to report on something, keeping it objective while understanding that people might not always in, you know, agree with the interpretation of events or presentation of events. Right one thing goes wrong in an article and you can kind of lose credibility like that. Or if you're trying to break a story and there's one thing that's incorrect, uh, that loses credibility in the whole story, even if say the rest of the thing is true. Right. But there's one little error that people latch onto. Um, yeah, it's a definitely a dense and complex <laughs> field there, especially right now, like we said, for people who, uh, may not be too familiar, why don't we step back a little bit as well? So, uh, you're the bass player and founder of the, first and only all Asian American dance man, uh, the slant. So 
Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you started the band? Um, was there any reason, did it happen to be all Asian Americans in the band? Uh, or was that kind of your intent starting out? It was definitely an intention starting out. So I had grown up in San Diego, California, and during the 80s, which is a time period people assume, especially with a big city, that it would be quite diverse. Despite that, I didn't have the best experiences. Like I was constantly faced with a lot of the stereotypes and ridicule that many Asian Americans face even today. You know, situations like having students only identifying you with what they see in pop culture which at the time, the only character was Long Duck Dong and 16 Candles. It was, it was terrible. And then having teachers and school administrators play off of that as well. So I would get beat up. I'd have rocks and basketballs and fists thrown at my head all the time. What were, your, uh, what were your parents like? Or were your parents, um, do you tell them about that when you're growing up? Or was that sort of something you kept to yourself? No, I didn't, I didn't tell them. I mean, they, were, they just... They were working so hard, I mean, working like double duty, just trying to feed the family. The last thing I wanted to do was tell sure. them. And but I think that's a lot of kids, of... right? A lot of kids who are bullied feel that way or um, tend to keep it to themselves because they don't want to seem like, you know, they need help or anything like that. Of course. And also there's kind of this weird unspoken code amongst kids. Like you don't tattle on someone. You feel like you can just handle it. Of course, I... I did eventually tell someone at the school, but they just ignored it. They just said, oh, you know, they, they used the excuse, boys will just be boys, which is absurd and terrible because I was getting abused by, by fellow students. But all, all those things made me actually really shy away from my culture. Like, I, I didn't want anything to do with it uh, by the time I was graduating high school. So uh, a few years later, I was in college, a few months from graduating, and I decided to drop out and join a touring punk rock band that was based in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> I, I, I moved to Portland. I ended up being really frustrated at that group and then wanting to start a new project. But it was because I saw a film, uh, Kill Bill from Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. And, and there's like this really iconic scene in the movie where this woman, Warren she walks into a restaurant with this gang of crazy 88s or her uh, Asian mafia that she led and it, that's when it kind of dawned on me that it was the first time I had ever seen Asian Americans depicted as cool, confident, and sexy, at least from an American director. Sure. So not like and, an old Kung Fu movie, like an old Bruce Lee or anything like that. Yeah. Because the only time I saw anything like that was when I imported movies via eBay, like Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee tapes and that sort of thing. And so to see an actual Hollywood production that was like a night and day difference to what I had grown up seeing and experiencing as a kid. And then I thought, man, if Hollywood is bad, then the music industry is a lot worse. Like this is 2004. YouTube wasn't around yet. I cannot think of a single Asian American artist that had ever graced MTV, the billboard charts or anything like that. And that was when I decided, you know, something really needed to change. And I decided I wanted to start, a band that would provide this bold betrayal of Asian American culture, something where I could embrace my heritage because I was living in Portland, Oregon. It's also known as America's whitest major city. <laughs> right, right. Like, you know, I had, there was nothing. That, like when I ran away from my kind of heritage, so to speak, in San Diego, I really ran away. And But being out there, isolated. Did your parents like, did they notice you kind of were like, you know, quote unquote, running away from it or... Um, was that sort of a subconscious decision and you kept going or did your parents ever mention it or anything oh, like that? They knew it. I mean, it was, you know, when I was in a junior high school, I told my dad I was ashamed of being Chinese. Well, wow. it like broke his heart because like, I mean, he worked tirelessly to take care of our family. And here I was just, just tired of being bullied at school and it just wanting nothing to do with my family who who we were because that part of my identity was so shameful to me. I mean, I still kind of partook in family celebrations and that kind of thing out of just kind of obligation, but it was really half-hearted. And it wasn't until I was isolated and alone in Portland that I realized how much I missed it and how much I took it for granted that there were people who spoke my first tongue and who had food that I could 
get. And, you know, it's like something just really powerful about that community that when you when you don't have it anymore, you realize how alone you are. And so with with the band, I wanted to create that. I wanted to create that sense of identity. And I also when I started the group, I wanted this pan Asian kind of cultural exploration where we wouldn't shy away from celebrating who we were like so we could be our true full selves because everyone who joined the band and this has been throughout the years so that i've had full lineup changes but everyone who's ever joined the band has always come in with this experience that they were the token person in whatever band they were in and they would be made fun of they would you know they would they would not be able to communicate who they were or have that kind of shared understanding but like with, with the lineup that we have and whenever people participate in the band, it was like, you don't have to explain the fact that you're craving rice or that, you know, like you want to celebrate the new year in February and not on December 31st. <laughs> right. Like people would just get it. You didn't have to explain yourself. And there's something to be said that when people are free to be themselves, they can really create their best art. When you were growing up, were you playing music as a kid? Or is that something you picked up later in life as well? Well, I started playing bass guitar when I was 10 years old. Okay. So pretty, from pretty early age, my, my parents got it as kind of a, a distraction for me since I would spend most of my evenings and weekends working at their, their restaurant from about age eight on, age eight on. Mm-hmm. But the, the, there was a music store down the street from the restaurant. So my kind of reprieve was once a week for 30 minutes i could learn bass guitar from this old jazz guy named nate and i took formal lessons for the longest time but that was kind of like my escape and where i could kind of dream about like playing art something that they kind of frowned upon they they didn't think it was a real dream they thought you know it was the typical be a computer engineer or doctor kind of dream for them Uh, but i i always was really passionate about art and, and the powerful power that music had. What made you choose bass or is that kind of the only option you had at the time? Well, I, I just thought, you know, it, it's something about it that just called to me, I guess. Okay. I mean, it was like, I don't know, like Harry Potter, the wand chooses you. Yeah. you know, like <laughs> the, I, I could have played guitar. Everyone played guitar, but I, I just thought there's something about it. And I also was a huge fan of Guns N' Roses at that time. And Duff McKagan had these incredible bass lines that really I, I thought were underappreciated. And I thought, well, hey, maybe if he's doing it, like I could do something like that. Right. Well, and literally, did you know, I'm sure, is that uh, how uh, in-demand bass players are the older you get because of the result of everyone playing guitar, <laughs> right? So if you're looking for gigs or bands, it's much easier to find a place if you can play bass. Um, oh, speak, no doubt. Speaking Especially of guns, if you're a drummer. Right, or drummers, <laughs> drummers are number one. Uh, who else did you like growing up musically? Um, you just said Guns N' Roses. Did you stay in like 80s metal or glam rock or did you kind of venture around? Oh, I loved anything and everything. I mean, I used to make mixtapes just based on what was playing on the radio growing up or like the vinyl records that my dad had. So uh, when I was in elementary school, I would go back and forth between NWA, EZE, and then like Guns N' Roses and even synth pop like New Order and The Cure, which ultimately be- became the kind of biggest influence on my music. music that I'm making today. Did your parents, were they, you just said your dad's vinyl records, were they really into music? They, was there a lot of music going on in your house? Well, my dad was. He loved the Beatles and the Stones. He loved f- 50s music. In fact, my parents used to bribe me. Like when I was in <laughs> elementary school, they'd pay me $2 a song to memorize something for my dad's Time Warner, like 50s golden oldies collection. And so I would just memorize like dozens of these things. Of course, they never actually paid me because they kept saying it would go to my college fund one right. day. So I was a little ripped <laughs> off. But but just learning those songs like Del Shannon and, um, you know, Buddy Holly, mm-hmm. it was like, this is really fun to do. I, I actually really just loved the music. And I still do. Like I have a huge collection of oldies. And it's just, just something that's always kind of shaped um, my a bit of the music that I create. Did your parents ever listen to music from China or your dad ever listen to music from China? Um, or was it mostly Western and American music that was playing? 
they they listen to a bit of both. I would say my mom more so. She really liked traditional Taiwanese folk songs that were kind of done in this pop rendition. Um, I think part of it was because my grandma used to sing this all the time and try and teach us these traditional songs that were sung in, you know, the aboriginal Taiwanese language, which is kind of getting lost more and more each, each passing day. But that was a way for us to kind of try and appreciate our culture a bit more. My dad loved American culture, loves American food and, and music. So I think he kind of gravitated towards a little bit of rock and roll more than, than my mom did. Sure. But um, but we, we kind of grew up listening to a bit of both. Awesome. And then you said your parents owned a restaurant. Was that a, uh Asian restaurant? Yeah, it was a Cantonese restaurant okay. in, in San Diego called House of Canton. And uh, how did they, do you know roughly like the story of how and when they founded that? Was that the first thing they did when they, you know, your family moved to America? Was it passed down or? They started that a little bit after I started growing up. Oh, so okay. before that, my dad actually worked at several other restaurants and had actually owned a couple of restaurants. But when I was, when my mom was pregnant with me, they decided they didn't want to own a restaurant because it takes so much work. They wanted to wait until I was in school. And same thing with my younger sister. Like once we were at a point where we, you know, they could drop us off at school and start doing kitchen prep work, that's when they decided to go back into the industry. So that was uh, the late 80s when they opened up the, the restaurant. How much younger is your sister? She's two years younger than I am. Did she feel the same need to sort of rebel against her culture like you did? I I don't think she, quite as much as I did. Um, I mean, she she kind of embraced it a little bit more. I, th I think, you know, to my sister's credit, she's very confident in who she is. She, she understands who, who she is and, and, and got it. She was much, she matured a lot faster than I did. So, um, she, she didn't necessarily hesitate and she didn't also have the same, same kind of experiences that I had growing up. So we had kind of a little bit of a different path there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone grows up so differently, no matter how close you are, just everyone's experiences are so different there. Uh, so back to the slant. So you started the span in Portland um, in what year was that again? 2000-something, well, right? That, so the idea for the band came out in 2004, but you got to remember, I was living in America's widest major city. <laughs> right. So I didn't know any anybody who got okay. the profile for this band. Okay. It took me two years. Oh wow! To, to get a lineup together, and that was like hounding people down on Craigslist, right. on the classifieds, and so on. But the first lineup came about in two thousand, late two thousand six, and we started playing in oh seven. What was that like? The first couple, uh, you know, once you got the band going, what was it like booking shows? Did you find that you had any issue doing that, or um, what was your experience like? In Portland, Oregon. I had already established myself a bit with my other act. So it, it was pretty easy to get those first shows because I already had a lot of momentum in my music career. I had the contacts and relationships. So people were more than happy to work with me. I, I would say the, what it was actually like was like, it felt electric, like the possibilities were endless for this group. I was just filled with excitement. Uh, it was for the, for the first time I felt just truly truly happy with the band and before our first show before we even played our first show the local asian american newspaper the asian reporter did a story on us talking talking about how we were kicking down the doors of venues and knocking down <laughs> stereotypes it was really amazing yeah, that's and, great uh, like i wasn't expecting that because you know i didn't start the group to be some kind of social political project I just thought, oh, I just want to celebrate our our heritage and make it about representation. But like within months of launching this thing, I always get these handwritten notes from kids across the U.S., like Asian American kids, who just said thank you, like thank you for existing, thank you for showing me that this is even possible to do this kind of thing. And at that point, that's when I realized, you know, we were more than just a band that we needed to take this responsibility quite seriously. And so as we as we kind of progressed and as we playing shows after a few months, 
we started doing workshops like anti-racism workshops while we we're playing at Asian cultural festivals or especially at anime conventions. And so like I would, you know, a lot of us started taking training on anti-racism and diversity inclusion work so that we could be properly equipped to kind of help guide kids through this stuff. So it was really, really heavy and, and really unexpected because, you know, you go in thinking you're going to play music as a punk rocker and all of a sudden you're doing like straight up, you know, social justice equity work. Right. But punk rock was also has almost always had a political side to it too right maybe in not this sense more just anti-government um you know obviously like anti-flag and uh things like that but um yeah i would i would say in in attitudes certainly like this attitude against the establishment right. or against power or even the status quo it was a music that was birthed in in a movement kind of like hip-hop was birthed in a movement but um you know but for me i was I, I kind of approached it as a genre of music for a while, and then it, I got into kind of the policy aspect of it, or, or thinking about creating social change through music a little bit later on in life. So it was something that kind of evolved with me as, as I kind of learned to become more aware of what I could do with music and also the responsibility I had just being an artist. You mentioned the touring anime conventions. Do you do you watch anime? Did you watch anime? Did you have to watch anime as a result of playing these? <laughs> I watched the occasional anime growing up. Like I especially used to watch Robotech because it would be broadcast on television. And I knew of manga, like the Japanese comics, because my my cousin Michael grew up in Japan and would bring them over. And I was like, Dragon Ball Z, this is really awesome. But I never thought of it as as anime or, or as anything i just thought it's another comic book it just happens to be from japan or this cartoon is from japan and 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 so it it didn't occur to me how niche of a fan base it was until i went to my first event and i was like <laughs> holy cow these yeah. kids are like obsessed with yeah. the culture and i thought what an opportunity like number one it's a great marketing opportunity if you're an asian band but also what a great opportunity to try and talk to them about things beyond pop culture, like beyond that surface level stuff. Like, hey, this is who we are as people outside of like the super energetic, crazed animation. <laughs> that Did you ever think about how kids who are at anime or people who are at anime conventions, um, Asian people are really embracing, uh, you know, their... Asian culture where you said growing up was almost a complete opposite. Did you notice that or did you think about that when you started doing the anime convention circuits? Well, what was funny is that we weren't playing for a lot of Asian people. Like, <laughs> okay. I mean, so 10 years ago, if you looked at, if you were to just look at the demographics of who was attending anime conventions, it was like even more white than the city of Portland. <laughs> it was <laughs> just a bunch of geeky white kids who loved the culture, who loved their video games so much so they wanted to dress up and act like all these characters they were seeing on television. So for me coming in there, I was like, man, these kids got some serious yellow fever. <laughs> and, you know, it was, I would say the fandom was a little bit young and perhaps immature then because mm. they, we didn't have quite the level of awareness that of, of justice issues, both from a racial perspective as well as gender as is starting to erupt and, and develop now. So it was really different walking in because I would go to these conventions and they would only be obsessed with one small aspect of Asian culture, and that was Japanese pop culture. So kids would come up to me and say like, hey, which one of your songs are in Japanese? And I'd be like, well, my singer is Vietnamese and he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't speak Japanese, Japanese. <laughs> so none of them. But I'd always say, like, you know, but good news. It's in English, so you could understand everything. And they oftentimes look disappointed and walk away. Or they'd say, like, so you're like this J-pop, like Japanese rock band? I'm like, no, we're like a Pan-Asian buffet. You know, we got a little <laughs> bit of everything. But uh, they, they, they couldn't quite grasp that for, for a while. Like, it, was, it took playing and proving ourselves on the road, showing that we could have a really good concert where they could have fun and dance. And then interacting with them one at a time 
for for the fan base to really accept us and and to welcome us into that world. What was the next step for you guys after this? I mean, you guys had released a couple of records. Um, let's see, your first record was about 2007, and then you basically released one almost every year for about four years there. Um, mm -hmm. So what was that like, yeah. the growth and development of the band? Well, I mean, we were just touring a ton. But by the time we were in, our, like, 2009, I had left my job, and everyone had basically decided we were just going to hit the road. So we were on the road a lot, supporting ourselves with our music. But it was kind of the worst timing ever because apparently there was this thing going on called the economic recession. So uh, after being on the road for like seven months, people didn't want to pay to see live shows and people didn't want to pay to have a band. So we were back at square one needing to figure out like some other path forward. But we decided, you know, not, it was so important to us that we decided we wanted to keep on playing music. So uh, I started booking even more anime conventions because those were still doing okay. They, I mean, they had larger budgets. They could take us around the country. We started working for the government, like playing shows for troops serving overseas and then even doing, and doing like, yeah, this was around the time of like Danny Chen. So there was a height, heightened awareness of issues pertaining to Asian Americans, especially in the military. So they, yeah, so they asked us to go because they thought, hey, if we have some Asian Americans playing, maybe our soldiers will have a more positive view of, uh, and, and, you know, maybe embrace diversity a little bit more. So we, we would do runs of shows called Operation Gratitude and play in places like Bosnia and Kosovo, uh, play, playing for troops like, yeah, in the middle of winter when it's snowing, or just like tr dragging our gear through like three feet of snow to play a show outside for the military. It was really, uh, really fun. That's pretty <laughs> different, but. Yeah. Fun. yeah, that sounds pretty wild. Um, did you get a chance to explore whether the cities or the countries you were kind of visiting around, or was it kind of just stop and go? It depended on the place. So we got to explore Sarajevo a bit and uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is just absolutely incredible because, I mean, that was where World War One started, essentially. And so it was a city that was, you know, for the last, for decades, just all they experienced was war. So you drive through a city and you can see bullet holes and mortar shells in the buildings and the sidewalk. Yet it was this beautiful ancient place too. So really, really cool and definitely not expected. For, like, again, one of those things I would never kind of dream of doing, but because we were doing all this other social work, the government reached out to us for help. And I thought, this is cool. Like, yeah, I want to go to Europe. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun. And, and it, what a great way to honor folks serving our country and to try and advance that discussion. Because, like, you know, there's a many of us in the band also grew up with bullying and torment. And so when we heard the news of, of um, Danny Chen and, and, and folks being, like, harassed in the military, we could identify with that. And so we thought we can go and we can share our story, use our music as a platform and kind of a bridge to do so. And... And, and use it to be this kind of powerful uh, tool to, to try and create more change. And then for context, for those who on the podcast who aren't aware of Danny Chen, uh, Danny Chen was a U.S. soldier who in what, 2011 or 2010, um, he had committed suicide in Afghanistan while he was on duty. Uh, and mm -hmm. the investigation found out that he had been racially harassed um, and he was beaten to death or beaten almost to death right by his fellow soldiers leading up to his death yeah yeah he is brutally assaulted uh, both physically as well as emotionally and and you know there wasn't a unique experience either like they found out there was rampant harassment in particular against asian american soldiers in the military so it it, it was it was something that cut real deep and we, we definitely wanted to try and you know, be a part of that conversation. That's great. I mean, that's a, it's a very cool story to, to add to your list of the band's accomplishments. Uh, but what people may have heard uh, of you from, if they hadn't heard of your music beforehand, uh, would be Matal versus Tam, um, the Supreme Court case that 
the slants and yourself had against the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office about the band name. Um, can you give us, why don't we talk about that for a bit? Well, this actually started in late 2009. I had met an attorney who was an intellectual property attorney. He was a good friend of my publicist and happened to be a big fan of our band. He actually recommended that we file an application to register our band's trademark because it's actually something that's pretty common for artists to do, especially if they're in the headlines, if they're if they're making some some momentum. I mean, I mean just you guys like are touring would, a lot. If, yeah, we were touring all over North America at that point. Yeah. I mean, NPR did their first story on us talking about how we were building this geek army because we were playing <laughs> anime conventions. Right. Uh, so, you know, we were on, I think, about a thousand radio stations at that point. And so he's like, you you better, you should have done this a while ago, but, <laughs> you know, you should do this. And he also learned about something that I was frustrated about, which is that, you know, a little bit earlier, some fans of ours bought tickets to see the slants, but it turns out that there was another band who started after us this, who decided to call themselves that same name. And when, when they found out it was a non-Asian band, not us, they were really upset. They asked the venue for the money back and the venue owner said, hey, you paid money to see the slants. You saw a band called the slants, so we're not going to give you money back. There wasn't a lot I could do about it. And then two other bands popped up calling themselves the Slants. So they were kind of riding off of our momentum. So it was happening already, <laughs> right? Yeah, using our name, which was really frustrating. And so he's like, look, if you want to prevent that from happening, you got you to gotta apply. You got to file this trademark. So I decided to do it. And we thought it'd be this really easy kind of normal process. But it turns out, for our case, it was a little bit different. Very different. Because, <laughs> yeah. The the Patent and Trademark Office decided that our name is disparaging or uh, racially offensive towards Asian people. And it's an old bit of law called Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which basically says you can't register marks that they consider scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. But it's not what like anybody considers disparaging. They say it has to be what they call a substantial composite of the reference group. So in our case, uh, Asian Americans, by and large, have to have massive issues with our name, like protests and that sort of thing. However, the government did not find a single Asian American. They instead quoted UrbanDictionary.com, uh, <laughs> a website called AsianJokes.com, and then they put pictures of Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back in slant-eyed gestures as evidence that our name was offensive instead of what we saw it as, which was this reappropriated way of saying it's our perspective or our slant in life or what it's like to be Asian Americans in the music industry. And so that and kicked not, off this. And not to mention it's four or five Asian American dudes in the band, right? Who selected yeah, this name yeah. and are playing in it. Yeah. yeah, and also at the time doing anti-racist work right. on yes, behalf that too. of the U.S. government and, and, and working with cultural organizations across this country. I mean, by this point, we were working with almost 40 uh, different Asian-American social justice organizations around the U.S. So when we appealed, we were using some of those uh, contacts who gladly stepped up. We appealed demonstrating how we had positive coverage in every single Asian American newspaper in the country. We had incarceration camp survivors. We had independent national surveys. Even an editor at the New American Oxford Dictionary wrote this giant paper about the history of the term slant and how Asian Americans were using it more often than not as this kind of reappropriated term. Uh, the, the government said all that was not good enough uh, they instead continued to rely on Urban Dictionary. Um, was there a specific reason was, they said Urban Dictionary was a legitimate source or um, a place they can go to? They just say they consider multiple sources in dictionaries. And I think it was just an easy search for them. It, it, like Because when, when we got deep into it, they started going back and quoting dictionaries from the 1930s since most of the current dictionaries either 
removed the definition of slant as a racial slur entirely out of the dictionary, or they moved it so far down the definitions list, it wasn't really useful for them anymore. So they went back to these old textbooks from like 80 years ago uh, to, to justify their decision. Now, in 2011, and this is what eventually put us on track to the Supreme Court, we decided to change legal tactics. And we instead stepped back and said, hold on a second, you've given trademarks for slant like hundreds of times. What is it about this band? Like, why did you deny right. me? Like, what, were, because what were the other I, examples? Do you remember? Or do you know of him? Uh, slant Shack, Slanted Records, uh, Do the Heritage Slant, Slant No Rant. So just uh, ac across the board, a ton of ways. Yeah, from radio to music to food to skateboards. It was all over the place. I mean, you know, it's a very common word, so it's not, not surprising. And so when we said, why why this band? Because uh, turns out I'm the only person in U.S. history to be denied a registration uh, on the fact that they might be disparaging. Everyone else is okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, huh. So there was something unique about us. Yeah. And... And that's when the government said that we were too Asian. Wow. So what was they said? <laughs> what was that well, like? Well, <laughs> well, their exact wording is they said it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian band. Uh, in other words, they said if you, go, I mean, they even justified it, saying if you go to the slants.com, you'll see photographs of Asian people. You see Asian imagery on their on their albums, like Rising Suns, the Dragons, and that kind of thing. The, the, the rationale is that if people looked at us, they would they saw the word, it. The words, yeah, they would just basically say racial slur and not any other possible definition in the dictionary. But that's a really convoluted way of saying anyone can register the slants as long as they're, they're not Asian. Asian, right. Huh. And so we appealed. Uh, both on terms of like their, their procedural and evidentiary issues. Like, I mean, the only time they ever found anything offensive or derogatory with uh, slant was when they wrote slant plus derogatory plus the N word. So Wow. Okay. So very, they were stretching. Yes. Like very extreme. And on top of that, you know, there's something called due process, which means you can't be treated differently because of your identity. And then one of the junior attorneys is like, you know, I wonder if this is a free speech issue. And he just threw in a random free First Amendment argument uh, into the legal brief, which by the time we appealed up to something called the Federal Circuit, which is right below the Supreme Court, they decided they didn't want to hear any of our arguments. They didn't care about anything. All they wanted to talk about was whether or not the law that was being used actually violated the first amendment so they kind of restricted what we could say about it and we argued that yeah that's an abridgment of first amendment rights because it turns out that if you study this law and how it's used well it's actually really disturbing because it we learned that the law is used disproportionately against people of color and members of the LGBTQ community, because those tend to be groups that reappropriate language, which actually make them prime targets under this law. And so, and and it was like, I, other people had similar experiences to me, where if you were not of the group, you were given the benefit of the doubt. So every single racial slur that you would think of for nation, uh, like, I mean, you know, slant is not of uh, the racism Richter scale that right. that high up. Yeah, correct. I mean, but when you think about the really devastating terms to us, like mm -hmm. for me, that that would be like gook, yep. jap, chink. chink. Right. I mean, those are really horrific. I have terrible memories of those. All those were registered trademarks, and they were all wow. registered by non-Asians. And uh, whenever an Asian applied, like there was a T-shirt company called Chink Proud, they applied, they were swiftly rejected. Wow. And so no and so, other denials or no other rejected company or trademark attempts had made it this far or had taken it this far i mean obviously yeah, there's a million people, reasons like it's expensive yeah but... most people give up yeah i mean it, it, I, you gotta admit like realize by the time we got to the federal circuit i was already half a decade of my yeah, life and that and that's and I mean, I, time money uh 
everything else in between. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I had to take on second and third jobs just to pay for the court fees. Like my my by that time, my attorney's working pro bono, but just the fees that the courts make you pay, it's absurd. And so, you know, luckily we won at the federal circuit. Like we won, like overwhelming majority of of the the like nine out of twelve judges said like yeah. Uh, this this law is outdated. It, it it actually violates the First Amendment. But even the two of the dissenting judges were like, well, we don't think it's a constitutional issue. But man, that trademark office screwed up because the slants should have had registration. And, but what's funny is like six months later, I'd never got my trademark. Turns out the Department of Justice, along with the trademark office, wanted to sue me and appeal to the Supreme Court, and so that's how I ended up got, getting dragged to the Supreme. Court. It wasn't actually my choice, right? And so, <laughs> what, what was the reasoning behind um, trying to get you back into court? Like, what? Why were well, they suing you? What was the purpose behind that? They basically said, "Look, this this is a law that was passed by Congress in the 1940s. It's been around for 70 years. We don't take." removal of laws that lightly. So we want to wait till the final authority. Like we got to level up that final boss stage <laughs> and let let the Supreme Court decide. Interesting. Which, you know, it wasn't like a super surprising thing. Sure. But but I was like, oh man, that's going to add another few years and another right. like couple, you know, thousands of dollars. dollars. Yeah. And, but um, I, I, I knew I had to do it because... I saw how they were using the law. I saw how it was just demolishing these small businesses and artists and nonprofits. And I couldn't walk away from knowing that they would continue to use people's identities against them, all in the name of racial tolerance. Like they were the whole time they're claiming to be anti-racist, that they were doing our communities a favor while, of course, stripping our communities the, the right to actually identify ourselves have the dignity of choosing our own identities so so i i continue to fight and you know last year uh last year we ended up winning a unanimous decision from the supreme court ruled ruling in our favor yeah i mean that's amazing obviously uh for obvious reasons what was that like um taken to the supreme court so by then it had been what seven years more than that uh, by the time, well, by the time we actually got to the court, like oral arguments that, yeah, that was about seven and a half years in. Briefly, I guess, what was that experience like? I mean, stepping into there, obviously it's something people, you know, kids read about, uh, their whole lives it, in history classes. And then you're sitting in there knowing, uh, that you're about to enter. Yeah, it, it, it was really surreal i'll I'll say that because by then because of the decision at the federal circuit people were already putting our case in the textbooks so kids from law schools all over the country were studying this thing and then i was reading how so few asian americans ever have reached the supreme court like just about half a dozen cases so to be one of those cases was just a really strange feeling was there a theme into in the other Asian American cases, did you happen to, did you happen to remember if they also had to do with race or anything like that? Well, several of them did. I mean, the probably the most notable one amongst activists would be Fred Korematsu's case, which eventually led to the government admitting that the uh, incarceration of Japanese people was in fact illegal and unconstitutional, and that in, included kind of paying reparations to survivors from that era. So like that was a pretty monumental case. Most of the cases had been like 1800s and early 1900s. So it had been a while by the time my, my, my case rolled around. When you finally won, uh, what was the response like from the Asian American community towards you? Well, I would say like before before the case was decided, we had pretty broad support, but it wasn't. Cer- it certainly wasn't unanimous because there was 
a certain segment by then the, the case had blown up so big and the word of it started getting around so much that different people with different opinions and experiences started becoming more vocal about it and i would say there were a number of people who were concerned that if we won that this would ultimately benefit dan snyder and the washington football team oh that's interesting it's the washington redskins so yeah, so there were some reservations there. When we won, I mean, I would say most Asian Americans were really proud and really happy uh, because they'd been following the case for a while. But there were some, yeah, and but there were certainly people who were concerned because they thought this would severely impact the ability to get the football team to change their name from this racial slur. And, you know, it's it's really complex because the thing is, they were obviously in litigation. They had their own court case going, but had the Native American activists been successful in getting the the Washington football name canceled, the team still would not be obligated to change its name. In fact, they wouldn't even lose their trademark protection because they've built so much brand equity over the years. So it wasn't really impacting them. Like, in fact, Dan Snyder didn't even have to pay the legal fees because the NFL covered them all. So it was kind of this weird situation where like even if they were successful in, in the best case scenario it wouldn't achieve the goal that they were trying to get it was more of a, a symbolic victory than anything and what i realized is that we were becoming so obsessed with trying to punish villainous characters and people abusing speech that we were willing to accept the collateral damage that was being experienced by marginalized communities who did not have the resources to fight for themselves in court or to appeal decisions through the trademark office. Right, and, and that's and, a theme that goes throughout the legal system across the board, right? I mean, there's so many stories of people who just can't afford uh, legal fees course. or they can't afford bail bonds or anything, so they just go to jail because that's their, their best option at the time. Yeah, like, I mean, I spent almost a decade of my life fighting this case, and I didn't even commit a crime. So, <laughs> yeah, right, like, yeah. Um, you know, imagine folks who are arrested on trumped up drug charges or uh, who are falsely accused of things who can't afford good legal help like it's it's heartbreaking experiencing just this little facet of the the uh, justice system and also just a really big re revelation of like how we oftentimes see this battle like uh civil rights versus constitutional rights but the reality is they're one and the same like if you want to protect civil rights you have to protect protect constitutional rights because our communities need it more. I mean, that, that's why every civil rights leader, like for Malcolm X to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., like believed in the First Amendment because they saw what it was like when the government got to make decisions on whose speech was appropriate, whose protest was acceptable or not. Right. That's kind of funny. Um, are you familiar with Killer Mike of Run the Jewels? the hip hop. I am, yeah. Yeah, so he gotten a little bit of heat uh, a couple of weeks ago because he went on NRA TV to talk about how he supports the second amendment. Um and obviously in the context of the NRA, uh you know, he wasn't well, it wasn't very well received by the hip hop community or his fans. Um even, you know, fellow rappers and hip hop artists and stuff kind of came out saying, you know, why do you do that? But um, you know, he actually made kind of a similar point to that. He he said that his reasoning for that was that if the government changes the Second Amendment, the people who will be punished are, you know, people in the black community because, um, you know, the government will look for those breaking the law in like the black community first. And that, and I had, I had not heard that perspective before. And that was really interesting to hear um, him kind yeah, of explain that way. And while I certainly have my own feelings about the Second Amendment, right? Me too. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it is important to look at things with that kind of lens because the reason why the Second Amendment has expanded and ballooned up in terms of its importance and prominence in our law was actually because of the Black Panther movement. Like, it, there's a really fascinating um, podcast series called the More Perfect Podcast, and they talk about the history of gun rights, and it was used as a way of self-defense because because just like now unarmed black men were being gunned down in the streets and so the only way those communities could protect themselves were like policing the police and say look we're gonna just hold these weapons as our constitutional right allows us to we're not going to use them but we're just going to hold it so if you do something 
Like we're here to defend our people. And when cops are surrounded by like two dozen people with weapons, they, they thought twice about shooting one of their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's all, you know, it was fascinating. I just, again, I had not heard the argument from that way. Um, so it's interesting to hear that kind of a, a similar parallel, right. In the first, but from the first amendment scope. Yeah. And, and, and I certainly understand like it's, it's hard. It's, it's because we misunderstand what the first amendment is. Like there's a, so many assumptions about it. Like people think that hate speech is not protected by the first amendment, but the reality is like it is because there's no actual legal definition for hate speech. Like people can say, Oh, it's something that's the meaning based on race or other qualities. But, but the, definition is actually quite fluid. In fact, some people say the phrase black lives matter is hate speech. In fact, some police departments treat it as that. Right. And so people consider them like a, a hate group too, right? And things like that. Yeah. It's so it's a really kind of strange thing when you allow somebody else to define it and give them the power to enforce it. But the first amendment basically just guarantees that the government can't discriminate based on your views. It's to protect it isn't to protect the majority's voice, it's to protect minority voices, people who, you know, who, who don't want to get silenced by the mob, which, you know, tend to be the poor, tends to be communities of color and, and, and other kind of marginalized identities. So we, we forget that. We think like, oh, you know, because especially nowadays with the rise of the alt-right, people are kind of using it and waving it in our faces to kind of Make almost excuses. justify their Yeah. Yeah. But it's like we, we still have to stand by it because at the end of the day, we, we need it. We need those tools. And I also see that bad, bad language, it, like it, our fixation on bad language is sometimes a distraction from bad policies that drive it. Because the reality is that there would be no such thing as racial slurs in absence of a racial racist system. Racial slurs only have power because of a racist system. So we need to attack the system itself, the culture and the institutions and policies that drive those things, uh, rather than simply looking at the kind of symptoms of the problem. I mean, like, absolutely, we should call out racist behavior and language whenever we can. But we also need to keep in mind that the battle doesn't stop there. We actually have to look at what's preventing people from having a voice or getting housing or education. Yeah, I mean, that's all fascinating stuff. And I know you've, you've spoken a bit about that, correct? Like, I know you've done a couple of TEDx talks and things like that. Um, so you're continuing your uh, the activism you started by chance at anime conventions and <laughs> have since brought it to here, which is which is a pretty cool development. Yeah, who would have known that, like, doing some random panels at an anime convention would, would lead me to, like, a, the TED stage or something like that. But, you know, for me, it's... I understand that some of those perspectives are controversial. Like the fact that I engage and speak with white supremacists is sometimes surprising to folks, but I'm like, it's better than just leaving them on their own <laughs> because if, if they only talked amongst themselves, that's not going to get us anywhere good. Yeah. There's that show on CNN, um, the divided States of America, oh, right? With United States, United States of America. Out. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think his first episode, he goes and meets with white supremacists and stuff like that, and Lisa Ling does similar things like that. So um, It's important, and mm -hmm. it's, it's hard because it's so uncomfortable. And it's like, for some people, it's really traumatizing. But for those who have kind of the stomach for it and who do it in the, in the spirit of compassion, like you can actually do some really powerful and radical things. I mean, I think... With the recent passing of Anthony Bourdain, we see that like he was somebody who did not shy away from kind of speaking and connecting with folks who normally you wouldn't associate with right. uh, with totally. a very progressive liberal chef out of New York. Like like one of my favorite episodes is when he goes shooting guns with Ted Nugent on his property. And they're they find at some different points actual values to connect on and say, look we can actually agree on a few things here. Mm -hmm. Which is important, right? Especially right now when so much of the narrative is um, you're with us or against us. And when, yes. you know, in, in a lot of cases, maybe not so much on the full on white supremacist aspect, but on a purely 
um, you know, I guess in our case, Democrats and Republicans uh, scope, there are things that people relate about and, and often care about the same things, but it's a matter of actually having the conversation that will uh, lead you to having that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, a recent talk of mine I did called Yes, Read the Comment Section, which not a lot of people <laughs> like, but I'm like, I, I do it. I do it out of a habit to practice the ability to listen to people that I disagree with, like sometimes extremely disagree with. But it was really important for me to say, okay, how can I do it in a way that still shows compassion? How can I prove my values of love and justice in the face of people who want to see me dead? Like that's it's a really, you know, it's a really kind of interesting exercise, but it's allowed me to develop a little bit more patience when it comes to my work around social justice. Right. Well, I, I applaud, and I'm sure people listening to this will applaud your uh, your efforts for that. So we got a couple more minutes here. So your guys' is The Slants di- uh, discography, you have some pretty good album titles here. So just really quickly, uh, I'm going to read out the name and ask what the uh, name inspiration behind it. Some of them were more obvious than others, but I think it gives insight <laughs> into you and your band's sort of interest. So the first one, 2007, Slanted Eyes, Slanted Hearts. That was just something I thought of. I mean, honestly, it came from a MySpace headline for our band <laughs> profile. Okay. Uh, if you remember those taglines. And I yeah, just yeah, thought, yeah. oh, that's kind of catchy. Okay. And also very literal. <laughs> right, right. All right. Uh, 2009, Slant, Slant's Revolution. Slightly more obvious. Were you a DDR guy? I, I was not, but I was playing anime conventions and okay. we wanted to do dance remixes of our first album. So oh, okay. that's a little homage to to our fans. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, pageantry, 2010. Pageantry came about when I started getting obsessed with World War II era propaganda art. Oh, like the kind of okay. stuff around like yay communism or like boo communism. That artwork, I just loved it. I just thought it was hilarious. I would collect books of it and so we developed a whole album with that kind of world war ii imagery but we thought hey instead of like having propaganda or a pageantry of source on like false patriotism what if we did it on like asian american heritage and pride like a pan-asian look at things so we have artwork from each of our respective heritages like filipino culture vietnamese chinese and so on that's great uh 2012 the yellow album well, that was actually an album name we thought of for a very long time. We thought the Beatles got the white album. There's the black album. Jesus got the gray album. There's why the not the album. yellow album? Also, Weezer is the blue, <laughs> yeah, album, the blue so, album. Okay, so Weezer. why not the yellow album? Nice. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and then these last two seem to be related, but I won't make assumptions. So 2016, Something Slanted This Way Comes. And then 2017, the boy who who must not be named. So you've already made a Harry Potter reference in this conversation. Uh, are both of those <laughs> related, or is one of the Shakespeare uh, original reference? It's more, more like Shakespeare. So okay. uh, yeah, something slanted this way comes. Of course, is a playoff of something wicked this way comes. In fact, that was the original band uh, album name I wanted for the Yellow album, but uh, I got outvoted on that <laughs> one. And then and then our newest EP. Uh, is called the band who must not be named. Oh, did I and say boy? Is, yeah, the band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, same difference, I guess. If right. it's Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, but like a collective of boys, I guess. And <laughs> uh, that, of course, is a loving tribute to to Harry Potter, uh, and also dedicated to the trademark office. Right. Obviously, a, a double entendre there. Um, yeah, I, I love all those names. And, and if people haven't seen your music videos yet, your music videos are all very fun too. So definitely match the oh, art and the titles on stuff. Um, awesome. Okay, so we're about up on time. So where can people find you and follow you online? I know you have multiple places where they can keep up with your activism work or your band and all that sort of stuff. So if you want to follow the slants, the you can just do at the slants, like Twitter, Facebook, uh, or our websites, theslants.com. And for folks who are interested in my personal work, you can reach me at uh, at Simon the Tam or go to simontam.org. Awesome, that's great. Um, sweet. Any uh, any any parting words here before we call it? You know, I think that one of the things that I oftentimes like to share is a memory of being in DC, but not directly tied to our court case. And I think it's kind of this story that 
it's a good parallel to the journey I've had with the band and, and kind of my work on justice. We were actually in DC a few days before going to the court and spending Martin Luther King Jr. Day at the MLK Memorial. In fact, that was the night we released the band Who Must Not Be Named. And as we were walking around playing songs and celebrating the memory of Dr. King with um, different people there, I came upon one of his quotes, which is on the wall. It's just inscribed there. And it was actually his paraphrase of a Thomas Puller quote, which says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And as I kind of reflect on those words, I, I try and actually reflect on them every single day. I remind myself that the moral arc of the universe does not bend on its own. It requires patience, persistence, and people willing to step up and fight for their values. Because at the end of the day, apathy is not compatible with love. I love it. That's great. All right. Uh, well, Simon, thank you very much. And um uh, we'll keep track of all your amazing work and uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Thank you so much for having me.